guys! Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. And if you've been here before, I'm so happy that you came back to hang out again, and I hope you enjoy being here tonight. Today I'm going to be going through the story of somebody really interesting. I'm really excited for it. I usually do reviews of Mafia members, but I sprinkle in regular old gangsters here and there. There's a modern day singer named after this gangster, and I'm pretty into his music, so that's kind of what piqued my interest in this gangster. This is actually the first solo gangster that I've covered. I've always heard about him, but I honestly have no idea who he is, what he's done, what he's known for, so I decided that even though he's not in the Mafia, even though I don't even think he's Italian, we're gonna find out about him today, and maybe this will uh, allow me to kind of go outside of only Mafia members and start to branch off into true crime and into notorious gangsters, like regular gangsters, not only Mafia gangsters. But yeah, I really wanted to learn about him, and I'm not about to do research and waste my time reading up on someone and not share it with you guys. Of course not. I would never do that. Also, the fact that I got these really cool shot glasses off of Amazon, and the first one that I opened had his mugshot on it. There were six in total, and I actually really like them. I don't know if you're going to be able to get a really good view of it, but this is the glass. And it has a little excerpt about him on this side of the glass. So super fun and I just love it and I was super interested so we're gonna do it together tonight. So strap in ladies and gentlemen because tonight's gonna be a fun one and I'm excited for it. Barnes, who later came to be known as Machine Gun Kelly, was born July 18, 1885 in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know why all these guys' birthdays are so all over the place, but I also see July 18, 1900, so I don't really know his exact date of birth. He comes from a very, very wealthy and privileged family. Which is always so wild to me because people go into crime after they've lived such a relatively normal life growing up. Especially in Barnes's case where he grew up with money money and there's relatively no childhood trauma whatsoever. It doesn't make sense to me. His dad, George F. Barnes, was a very well-to-do insurance executive. Kelly really never got along with his father. They were like constantly, constantly fighting. They hated each other and they just clashed heads pretty often. It seemed like the reason for this is probably because Kelly always seemed to be a very bad kid, regardless of the silver spoon that his father put into his mouth and fed him from. He always got into trouble at school. He always got really bad grades. And honestly, when I'm looking at this now, I feel like he probably had a pretty severe learning disability. His family had the money to get him the best tutors and the best teachers that money could buy, but he just couldn't seem to grasp the material. He puts effort into his education. You can see that in a lot of the actions that he takes, but 
It's not that he doesn't care. Maybe it's the Sammy the Bull type situation and he's dyslexic and nobody knows it and it just comes off that he doesn't care. It was a very different time back then. People with disabilities were looked at as dumb, as stupid, like they didn't care. And it's not at all like it is now where people will get treated with care. They get nurtured. They figure out that there's some kind of learning disability and they help them to figure out education with that. That's not how it was back then. He did get along well with his mom, Elizabeth Kelly Barnes. She seemed to be his rock. He was absolutely devoted to her and she was the one that would like kiss his boo-boos and tell him that she loved him regardless of his success in school or in life and she just really coddled him. He went to Memphis Central High School, where he graduated from, and since we know he has all the riches in the world, of course, even in the turn of the century, he had complete and unlimited access to the family car in high school. I can't really talk shit. My parents bought me a car when I was in high school, and I did whatever I wanted, but in 1909, vehicles were so, 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 so rare. I talk about the rate of cars and car ownership in one of my other videos. I, I looked for it. I couldn't find it, but I remember going over it pretty in-depth. I talked about how many cars were registered at the time, and I think I even, like, threw in the price of milk and inflation and all that kind of stuff. I searched through my folders. I literally cannot find it. I searched high and low. I couldn't figure it out. But to put it into perspective a little bit, in 1909, there were 200,000 motorized vehicles in the United States, as opposed to 2022, where there is 1.446 billion vehicles. The reason that I bring that statistic up is because in that age, cars are seen so rarely, and they're very expensive to both buy and maintain as far as, you know, insurance, gas, all of that goes. So to see a high school student that has unrestricted access to the family car is like, a sign of money, money. Like, the, this family is not playing. So, anyway, this 16-year-old kid takes the car and goes out, and he decides that because he has access to a car, he's gonna start pulling off some crimes. He was arrested in his sophomore year of high school for bootlegging. Prohibition had started in Tennessee in 1909, so it was already illegal. So he gets arrested as a sophomore for a liquor charge, and that's a really bad crime. His parents are freaking out. They're like, oh my god, my little boy, he's supposed to make something of himself, and this will ruin his entire future. It'll go on his permanent record. They're really upset about it. Never you mind, though, because in reality, Daddy is very, very rich, and he's a very rich white man, and very rich white men's sons don't go to jail. That, that's not a thing. That doesn't happen. They don't get marks on their permanent record. Daddy uses his connections to get anything and everything that his stupid kid does swept under the rug. And that's exactly what happened here. Kelly got no real punishment, and it was like it never happened. A huge, huge blow came to Kelly's life when his mother died. It's actually really sad. She died right before he graduated high school. This... I think, is a really big explanation as to why he went so wild when he got into college. 
I know I lost my goddamn mind when my mom died. I went and did some crazy, crazy shit. I thought it was because I'm all messed up in the head, but maybe that's a pretty typical response when you lose your mother, is just to go off the rails, get in trouble, do crazy stuff. And it seems like that was Machine Gun Kelly's response as well. To put the icing on the cake of an otherwise wonderful relationship with his father, he fully put the blame of his mother's death onto his father. His father had recently been seeing a sneaky link, and his mother had discovered the infidelity. Kelly claims that his mother died of a broken heart after discovering this transgression. This whole situation is honestly really heartbreaking. 18 years old is so young to lose your mother, and on top of that, to so vehemently hate your father the way that he did, he had to feel like he was all alone in this world. Like, he has no family, he has nobody to lean on, he has nobody to support him, and it just seems like a really sad and tragic time for him. Even though he struggled all throughout school, he did graduate high school, and he went on to study at Mississippi State University, well, at the time, it was called Mississippi A&M, and he went there to study agriculture. I feel like that's such a random-ass major. Who goes to college for agriculture? I'd be pissed as hell if I paid for four years of college and walked away with a career as a farmer, but I don't know. I think that there is things you can do with that degree, but it's just kind of crazy to hear that somebody went to college for agriculture. The highest grade that he ever accomplished while he was at Mississippi State University was a C+. Do you want to know what class that was in? Go ahead and guess. Guess. Now, I know you're all thinking that it has to be gym or study hall, right? The easy ones, of course, because I'm letting you know that he's a terrible student. Well, you would be wrong. It's none of those. It's personal hygiene. He got a C plus in personal hygiene. So back in those days, if you did something wrong, you were given a demerit. In order to continue going to school, you need to do extra work, sort of like extra credit of like community service or something, and you had to work to clear out that demerit. If you racked up too many demerits at once, you would get kicked out of school. So it was a pretty big deal to get a demerit, and it was a pretty big deal to get rid of the demerits that you already had and get rid of them as quickly as possible. As much as Kelly continued to rack up these demerits, and he felt the full force of the justice system coming down on him as he worked to clear these demerits, he just couldn't help himself, and he continued to get demerit after demerit. After a while of this going on, the demerits still hadn't gotten him kicked out yet, but, like, he was on thin ice. I'm assuming the only reason that he hadn't been kicked out yet was that his dad had money and schools never kick out rich kids. Even though Kelly had only gone to college for less than a year, he had a pretty bad record to show for it. He got 31 demerits in the first semester, and he got 24 during the first few weeks of the second semester. He got all really bad grades, he got a zero in woodworking, and he got an incomplete in military science. Looking down the barrel of three more years of this absolute misery that he's going through, plus he had probably recently been talked to and somebody said like, all right, enough. Like, you're getting kicked out if you get even one more demerit. This is ridiculous. So Kelly made the decision to quit school. As most children that attempted to thrive out in the world and failed to do so do, 
Kelly returned home to Memphis and decided to just live a socialite lifestyle with daddy's money. One day, he was at a big, star-studded, big-deal event, and he meets this woman. Their eyes meet from across the room. Instant love. They are both goo-goo-gaga. As soon as Kelly lays eyes on Ramsey, it's like those cartoons where they get big hearts in their eyes, and it goes like, ooga style. Like, he instantly fell head over heels in love with this girl. Geneva Mimi Ramsey was born on December 1st, 1901, and she was the child of George F. Ramsey and Della York. It's funny that her hubby and her father have the same name. They're both George. Geneva's father was born in Little Rock, Pulaski, Alaska on August 11th, 1878, and he was also a very successful businessman. He built an entire empire around levees and railroads in the Mississippi River Valley. He's got references and contacts up the wazoo, and he's provided the best life that could possibly be provided for all seven of his children. Geneva is the absolute light of this man's life. She's the oldest of seven children, and she never had to lift a finger in her entire life, and it shows. She is the absolute picture of a delicate damsel. You know those, like, rich white girls with crystal clear porcelain skin? And they're the life of the party, the perfect hostess. She was raised from birth to be the absolute perfect wife. Think Emily Gilmore in early years. The pair did run into one pretty severe problem, though. Kelly already has a pretty serious reputation. It was well known in this very small community that Kelly had been arrested for running liquor in high school. Even though it wasn't on his record and his dad did get him out of it, he had been in a lot of trouble at college before dropping out, and that's no good. Everybody in the town knows everything there is to know about everybody else, and Ramsey's father immediately forbid her from seeing Kelly. This is some Romeo and Juliet shit, though, because even though Ramsey does love her father and she respects him and she tries to be the perfect daughter, she is absolutely gaga over this man. Yeah, he may be trouble, but he is full of charm. He's the perfect mixture of a bad boy, but, like, not actually a loser. She can see herself having adventures with him, but she knows at the end of the day, Kelly's father does have a lot of money, and he provides the lifestyle that she's already accustomed to for Kelly, so she knows they'll never be homeless, you know, they'll never be poor, but he's a bad boy, so she could see adventures. Despite her father's opinion and despite his orders, Geneva continues to see Kelly. Honestly, I think that being forbidden from seeing him makes him that much more appealing to her. This is kind of the first thing that she had ever done to disobey her parents, and she looks at it like it's worth it. The pair went on a spontaneous trip to Mississippi to visit Geneva's friend, and the two got to talking. Kelly is swept up in the romance of it all, and he talks Geneva into an impromptu wedding. The pair got married and spent the next few days, what they would consider their honeymoon, hanging out at Geneva's friend's house, and Geneva's friend just so happened to be the daughter of the Mississippi governor. So they return home to Memphis, and they inform both sets of parents that they're newlyweds. The entire world comes down on them. Ramsey's father is 
pissed. He is mad as hell. But as mad as he is, though, he doesn't want his daughter to just, like, up and disappear. Clearly, she's an adult now. She can go out and get married. And he didn't want to hate on her husband to the point that he just never saw her again. So Ramsay decides that he's going to give Kelly a chance. He doesn't really have any other choice if he wants to keep his daughter in his life. Like, that's literally her husband now. It's either get on board with him or she's probably going to leave and never see you again. After spending some time together, Ramsay actually starts to warm up to Kelly. He's starting to feel better about the relationship. He's like, all right, maybe this isn't the worst thing in the world. I've heard heard all these awful things about this kid, but he doesn't really seem so bad. It seems like he's really trying to get his act together, and it seems like he's trying to clean himself up, and if that's what he's trying to do, well, awesome. I'm on board. The two eventually got really close, and Ramsey ended up offering him a job. Through this job, they spend even more time together, especially because I'm pretty sure that the job is in Mississippi and their family is in Tennessee, so they're alone on this job together. After a while of that, the two men become absolute besties. They're inseparable, and Kelly looked at Ramsey as a father figure. He had always had this thick tension with his own father, and though he wasn't scared to use his credit card, he definitely did not have the warmest relationship with him. Since his mom died right before he graduated high school, he hadn't had a parental figure in his life in a while, so he was really happy to finally have that relationship again. Not too long after he came into his life, though, Ramsey's father was killed in a workplace accident. They were blowing up some space to put railroad boards on, and he was accidentally killed in the dynamite blast. Now, this all kinds of messed Kelly up. This was the start of his downfall. After having lost his mom, he hated his dad, and now he lost the man that he had grown to look at as a father. He was just absolutely done. Geneva's mom did everything that she could to help her and Kelly. She sold the business that belonged to her late husband, and she gave them a shit ton of money to get a fresh start, but Kelly just started tanking everything that he touched. Her mom gave them money so that he could start a used car dealership. It failed. She gave him money to start a goat farm. That failed. This time, her mom was out of money and she couldn't help them further. So now, Kelly has lost an enormous amount of money on multiple failed businesses and he has absolutely nothing to show for it. He doesn't have a company, he doesn't have a job, and he has absolutely no money. At this point, he swallows his pride and goes to the one place that he had done everything in his power to stay away from. He went to his father. He hits his father up and he's like, hey, I'm broke as a joke and I need help. Could you get me into the insurance business? His father gets him into the insurance business, but Kelly is just one of those people that has like serious ADD and can't stay on one task for too long. So when he didn't start seeing the returns that he wanted to see immediately, he leaves this business as well. So now he's failed at three separate businesses. He has no way to earn any kind of income, and he's clearly just spiraling out of control. Kelly and Geneva had recently welcomed their first child, George Jr., into the world. As you would expect from a man who is clearly, in my opinion, a narcissist, 
he's not a great dad. He expects Geneva to do absolutely everything. He doesn't really pay any attention at all to this baby. He doesn't help at all with raising him. He's just kind of there. The only problem at this point with that fact is that there's a baby in the mix, and now he needs to provide even more income into the house. It's not just him and Geneva anymore. There's a baby here, and babies are not cheap. Having absolutely no idea what to do next, Kelly decides to return to the only industry that he has ever been successful in, crime. He starts bootlegging again, and when he makes this decision, Geneva is pissed. She is mad as hell. She threatens to divorce him, and she actually moves out of the house a few times. I think it has a lot more to do with the fact that he's a shitty father, honestly. If I had a baby with someone and they paid no attention to the kid, expected me to do absolutely everything, and on top of that was unemployed and had gone into a dangerous life of crime, like, yeah, I'd use the crime as an excuse to get out, but it would definitely be more along the lines of, I want to leave because you're a shitty dad, you're a shitty husband, and now I have a concrete reason to dip. But despite all of her blustering and bluffing, after not that much time, they have a second son, Bruce. Now, I don't understand it, Geneva doesn't understand it, it makes no sense at all, but Kelly fell absolutely in love with Bruce. He was a father to him. He doted on him like crazy. He would hold him. He would get up in the middle of the night and change diapers. He did everything he could for this kid. While he was doing that, though, he continued to ignore George Jr. All the while, Kelly is getting deeper and deeper into bootlegging. And as he's getting deeper and deeper into bootlegging, his alcoholism is continuing to get worse and worse. He regularly came home wasted out of his face, and he would physically and emotionally abuse Geneva and George Jr., but he would just praise Bruce. After a while, Kelly decided that he needed a fresh start. He needed to get away from all the reminders of his past, get away from everybody that knows everything about him, and they all know that he had sunk multiple businesses, they all know that his wife had left him, they all know that she took the kids, and he just noped the fuck out, and he went to Kansas City. Not long after arriving in Kansas City, he starts to really miss his family. So it's all for nothing. He does this whole, I'm gonna start over thing, and then he gets on the phone, and he calls Geneva, and he's like, oh, honey, sweetie baby, I love you so much, I miss you so much, please, 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 please come to me, like, yada, 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 and he begs her to come live in this new town and do this fresh start with him. Geneva is a strong, independent, very smart woman, but when it comes to the baby daddy, man, women always fall when it comes to the baby daddy. Every single time. As much as the little angel on her shoulder was telling her not to, and absolutely do not fall for this again, absolutely do not pass go, do not collect $200, don't do it, she did not listen and decided to take the kids and reunite with Kelly in Kansas City. Kelly was working at a grocery store as a cashier, and it really didn't take long for it to be discovered that he was stealing money from the register. He was fired, and that was Geneva's absolute last straw. She picked up the kids, she moved back to Memphis, 
She filed for divorce, and that's the last time we're going to hear about Geneva in this entire case. And that's the last time Kelly hears of Geneva, too. At this point, he officially changes his name from George Kelly Barnes to George R. Kelly. So now, Kelly is on his own, and he's in this new city, Kansas City. He doesn't have a job, and this man, he's like literally the opposite of Rumpelstiltskin. You know how everything that Rumpelstiltskin touches turns to gold? Well, everything that Kelly touches turns to dog shit instantly. He fails at every single thing that he touches. So what does he do? Of course, he goes back into bootlegging. He takes on some partners, and together they create a pretty big bootlegging ring. They expand into Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Mississippi, and New Mexico, so they get pretty big. Things are going pretty well for Kelly, so what do you think is about to happen? Come on, say it with me. It turns to dog shit. Yes, I knew you'd know the answer. I knew you'd see that coming. Kelly is arrested in Santa Fe on bootlegging charges on March 14th, 1947. He spends a few months in jail, he comes out, and he heads for Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, he goes there and he's chilling for a little while, but he has absolutely nothing. He's homeless, he's penniless, and he's just absolutely screwed. He's arrested for vagrancy on July 24th, 1927, so it's like almost immediately after he gets out of jail that he's arrested. It's one of those drunk tank visits, so he's not in jail long, he doesn't do time or anything, he gets out pretty quickly, but he was arrested almost as soon as he got out of jail. In 1928, he's arrested for smuggling liquor into a Native American reservation. The judge takes a look at his record and is just over this shit. He's like, no, this rich, spoiled little bitch has been given every opportunity in the entire world, and he's still a slimy little thug. I'm not letting him off just because he's Daddy Warbucks' son. Like, absolutely not. So the judge gives him three years in Leavenworth. The time behind bars does do some good for his criminal career, though. He makes friends with Charlie Harmon, Frank Jelly Nash, Francis Jimmy Keating, and Thomas Holding, who are all notorious bank robbers. Jimmy and Holden decide that they don't want to be in prison anymore, so they're going to do something about it. They create these forged trustee passes, and they use them to just walk out of the prison. So they essentially escape from prison on February 28, 1930. The prison went to the media, and they offered a $100 reward for the apprehension and return of these guys to prison because they look like shit that they let this happen. They look really freaking dumb for letting these guys walk right out the front door. And they accuse Kelly and Harmon of helping create these fake trusty passes in the photography department that the both of them worked in. They didn't have enough evidence to officially charge them, so they weren't actually charged, but they knew that they were the ones that did this. Funny enough, even though they had already been made an absolute fool of with these two guys escaping, another person in Kelly's group, Jelly, would also later escape Leavenworth. Kelly did not escape. He was released in 1930 on good behavior, and like many Americans that go into the justice system, he went from a very small-time criminal to using the connections that he made while he was in jail he met up with this new gang, 
And he starts his life as a hardcore criminal. And this is the beginning of the end for Kelly. When the two men escaped prison, they headed straight for St. Paul, Minnesota. St. Paul had a government and a police force that were well known to be in the pockets of gangsters or other well-known criminals. It was it was pretty much a safe haven. Any fugitive was able to go there and escape execution, persecution. It was just a stay of execution to go here because all the cops, all the judges, everybody was in a gangster's pocket. So it was a safe place for them. When Kelly was released from prison, he headed straight for St. Paul to meet up with them. Harmon made his way there when he got out of prison in 1930. And in 1931, despite the fact that they had already been embarrassed by those two guys escaping, another of Kelly's Leavenworth gang, Jelly, would also escape and he also headed straight for St. Paul, Minnesota. The group starts pulling off bank jobs, and they start quickly. The first robbery was only a few months after Kelly got out of jail. They robbed the bank of Wilmar, Minnesota, about 100 miles away from St. Paul. They got $70,000 out of it, and Gustav H. Gus Barfus, the head of Minnesota's Bureau of Criminal Activity, came out to the press and gave a press release, and he said, I can't remember a holdup in the history of the state since the raids of the Younger Brothers and Jesse James gangs, which compares to the one at Wilmar for daring and cold-blooded disregard for human life. He said that because a teller had been pistol-whipped in the robbery, and one of the robbers ended up shooting a machine gun into the crowd of people that had gathered to see what was going on. It didn't kill anyone, but it did catch two women, and they didn't care if it killed someone. Kelly and his gang ended up killing the guy who shot into the crowd and shot innocent people. His name was Silverman, and he was found dead with two of his friends shot to death in the woods. Kelly later claimed that it was a man named Miller who killed him, but Miller just so happened to already be dead. So it was super easy to put a kill like that on him. And the mafia had actually killed Miller because of his involvement in the Kansas City Massacre. There was talks that Kelly was involved in the Kansas City Massacre, but he didn't end up getting entrenched in the mafia with it, so... That's not even, like, a topic that I'm gonna talk about here. Catherine Thorne was an absolute knockout of a woman, and she seemed perfect for Kelly. She was born Cleo Lyra May Brooks, and she had an 11-year-old daughter, Pauline, and she already had a few marriages under her belt. She was really tall, she was a redhead, and Kelly once said that she was the prettiest redhead I ever saw. Her parents had been divorced, and her stepfather was a pretty big deal. He was a political figure in Paradise, Texas, where Catherine grew up. She followed in her parents' footsteps, and she ended up getting divorced. And then she did it again and again. Thorne married her first husband when she was only 14 years old. So it's no surprise that that relationship ended. She gave birth when she was only 15 years old. So when she met Kelly, yeah, she had an 11-year-old kid, but she was only 29 years old, and Kelly was 48. She divorced her baby daddy after two years. She married another guy, but they got separated pretty quickly because she moved with her mom and stepdad to Fort Worth, Texas. When she got there, she married her third husband, Charlie Thorne. Thorne was... An interesting fellow. 
He was a bootlegger, and he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. The couple fought like cats and dogs, they absolutely hated each other sometimes, and Catherine would constantly ridicule her husband. She would call him stupid, she would exploit the fact that he was illiterate and just mock the crap out of him. She would call him a loser, mocking his inability to prosper in the bootlegging industry further than just like some small-time liquor manufacturer. In April of 1928, Charlie Thorne unalived himself. Funny enough, even though one of the main things that Catherine loved to attack him about was the fact that he was stupid and illiterate and couldn't read or write, Thorne left behind an unaliving note that had perfect punctuation and spelling. The note stated, I cannot live with her or without her. It was a well-known thing that Thorne was illiterate. She was not shy about sharing that fact when people asked about her husband. So when police are reading this unaliving note, they're like, uh, what the hell? Like, how could he possibly write this unaliving note when he can't even read the first sentence of a book, no less write it? However, to be fair to Catherine Kelly... There has never been any official evidence that this unaliving note actually existed. It could just be a myth that circulated in the underground circles and became public knowledge later on when her name blew up. So, because of who her dad was, the judge never ended up going after her for murder. Everybody knew that she killed him. They heard a loud-ass fighting going on, and then they heard a gunshot when he was supposed to be alone when he did it, but her father is a really big deal in this town, and the kids of politicians, they get away with whatever they want to get away with, so no one ever came after her. So now, Catherine is single for the first time in a really long time, and she's like, hmm, what should I do? Her mom always worked, so she wasn't really trying to live that, like, housewife life. Catherine decided that the best course of action was to continue the measly bootlegging operation that her late husband had started. She starts transporting, manufacturing, and selling liquor. People kind of got a kick out of working with her because it was so rare to stumble upon a female in the underground world. You never saw female criminals back then, like... You know the names well of any woman that was in crime because it's so rare. Catherine was brought up on robbery charges soon after this, but she ended up getting released on a technicality. So now, she has the money that she gained from the robbery, she is a free woman, and she has the money that she is earning from bootlegging, and she has everything that Thorne had ever owned, and she takes all that money and puts it together, and she goes out and she buys an entire closet filled with fancy designer name brand clothes and starts to hit the town. She starts going out and taking advantage of Fort Worth's hopping nightlife. She starts rubbing elbows with the area's elite and becomes really popular in the socialite circle. This is where she meets Kelly. Kelly met Catherine at one of these swanky parties that they're both going to, and they hit it off super quick. A woman who, unlike his first wife, appreciates a criminal? Hell yeah, she's made for him. He falls absolutely head over heels in love with this woman right away, and she's pretty into him too. A man who will listen to her, let her create him in her image, cave to her, and just do whatever she asks like this is a dream come true. She can't be a mastermind criminal, because she's a woman. But she can create one. 
If she had to create a perfect criminal, Kelly was a really good image to be able to create. He was really handsome. He was a big teddy bear. He had olive skin, dark hair, really bright blue eyes, and he was really smart. They start chilling nonstop, and before you know it, they're that time's Bonnie and Clyde, which is another video I do plan to do one day, so I'm not going over them at all. They were married by September of 1930. Catherine bought Kelly a machine gun, even though he had virtually no experience with guns at all, no less a machine gun, or even had any interest whatsoever in guns, she quickly set to work making Kelly's name a very popular and infamous one. She would go around to all the criminals that she knew, and she would exaggerate or even sometimes fabricate stories about him. How he's such a badass. How he's out there living large, making millions from bank robberies and bootlegging. He's just doing all the things. How he's one of the biggest bootleggers in the country, maybe even the world. She was the one that coined the name Machine Gun Kelly. And she would go around to friends and be like, oh my god, did you hear? Did you hear about this new criminal Machine Gun Kelly? I hear he's crazy. He'll just start shooting into a crowd with a machine gun. Like, he really just does not give a shit. This man is insane. And it's kind of funny because Kelly had actually killed somebody for doing exactly that, but now she's running around and bragging that that's something that he does. But you know what? Hey, he's not complaining. So Catherine's plan works, and Kelly's name starts getting whispered all around the criminal underworld. Honestly... Catherine is fully responsible for Kelly's claim to fame. He really wasn't anybody or anything notable. He wasn't special. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't even particularly a good criminal. He wasn't even brave. He just happened to be with somebody that was, like, really good at gossip. And she had everybody convinced that he was this amazing criminal that would get anything done for you. Meanwhile, if he had never met Catherine... Nobody would have ever heard the name Machine Gun Kelly. Even while Catherine is out there talking Kelly up, he is super, super broke. It's understandable. Everybody out here is broke. It's the depression. But the greatest bank robber in the whole world is expected to have some extra money sitting around here and there. One day, Kelly gets word that an associate of his, Barker Carpus, raked in $100,000 from kidnapping a beer baron, William Hamm, in St. Paul in June of 1933. That was it. Fuck bank robberies, fuck working, fuck it all. Kidnapping is where it's at. He's also kind of forced to make the switch. The Great Depression had taken out a huge chunk of the American banks, and the banks that were still standing were running out of cash. Very few banks had cash on hand anymore, so bank robberies were made virtually impossible. There was really nothing left to rob. The last bank robbery of Kelly's was on November 30th, 1932. He and his friend Eddie Dahl robbed Citizens State Bank of Tolipo, Mississippi for $38,000. The first kidnappings that Kelly pulls off are not successful. He works with this ex-cop, Bernard Big Phil Phillips, and dude is a straight-up train wreck. He used to be a cop, but it's not really clear why he was no longer a cop, but it's pretty obvious when you look at the way that he handles himself during these kidnappings. It's ridiculous. 
The first kidnapping that Kelly and Phillips pulled off together was unsuccessful because Phillips killed the dude. Regardless of whether it was intentional or not, it wasn't. Phillips' gun went off on accident, and it killed the guy. Like, come on, my dude. You're supposed to be a cop, and this asshat Kelly is running circles around you. Out of the two of you, you're the dumb one, really? Do you know how hard it is to be the dumb one in a room alone with Kelly? You have to work for it. It's really freaking hard. The second kidnapping was Phillips's idea, and he brought it to Kelly, and Kelly was like, oh, hell no. First of all, my dude, you killed the last guy we kidnapped. No thanks. He also believed that the person that Phillips wanted to kidnap actually didn't have any money. All in all, he had absolutely no interest in working on this kidnapping with Phillips or working with Phillips at all, and wouldn't you know it, he was right. Phillips went through with it, and lo and behold, dude ended up being broke. Phillips ended up releasing the dude, who promised to return with the ransom money, but obviously he was never heard from again. Kelly went out on his own and kidnapped Howard Wolverton, a banker, with Eddie Dahl. Dahl pulled the same shit on him that Phillips's dude pulled. Wolverton pulled the same shit that Phillips's dude pulled. They demanded $50,000 ransom, and he was a wealthy bank president's son, but the father came out publicly and refused to pay any ransom at all. He came out and did a press conference where he counter-offered the public. He offered $25,000 for information leading to the arrest of Kelly or whoever had his son hostage. So now, Catherine is sitting on the sideline watching this all happen, and... She's pretty much laughing her ass off. She's like, you silly, silly boys. Why did I think I could let you do your own thing and leave you to your own devices? So this is the point where she goes out and buys Kelly a machine gun. She drags his ass up to the cabin and teaches Kelly how to use it by forcing him to shoot walnuts off of a nearby fence. She set out in building Kelly's brand. The reason his kidnappings were unsuccessful were not because he was stupid, it's because he wasn't feared. If his name meant anything underground, Wolverton never would have risked not paying him back. When Kelly got Albert Bates, a man that he had successfully robbed three banks with in the past, to come on board after a lot of hoaxing, I might add, they set their sights together on Guy Wagoneer, the son of an oil tycoon worth about $100 million and the owner of the second largest branch in the United States. Catherine decided that for this kidnapping, she had a way that she could help. She had already built up Kelly's name in underground circles, so what else can she do? She hits up two of her friends, Detectives Weatherford and Swinney, and she sees if she can recruit them to help. She goes to them and she's like, hey boys... Okay, listen, I have got a proposition for you. If I give you this money, will you make sure that if my two friends, George and Albert, get arrested for this kidnapping, you can do one of two things. If they get arrested in the state, you can release them and lose the evidence. And if they get arrested out of state, you can go and, you know, show your badge and get them back. Say that you're going to extradite them back here. And then you can lose evidence and let them out. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. We're good. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. 
And the cops, Weatherford and Swinney, they're like, oh yeah, totally not a problem. We got you, Catherine. Don't worry. Totally on board. The minute these two detectives walk away from Catherine, they phone up the FBI and they're like, oh my god, you will not believe this crazy story that this insane lady just brought to us. Oh, hey, by the way, it's Machine Gun Kelly and Albert Bates, and they're going to do it. And let's make sure that Wagoneer is protected and isn't able to be kidnapped because that's what they're planning to do. They went to Wagoneer and they're like, hey, dude, they're coming for you. We got to protect you. And they did. They protected him. They made sure that he didn't get snatched and they thwarted Kelly's plan to kidnap him for ransom. So Kelly and Bates are just going about their day, minding their business. And they get word that Wagoneer is no longer in the state. He's out of state on business. So they're like, ah, fuck. Like, we really had our sights set on getting the payday at the end of this weekend. We don't want to wait. We can't wait another week. That's just not feasible. All right, fuck it. Plan B. Let's go after another dude instead. The second guy that they decided to go after was Charles Urschel. Mr. and Mrs. Charles F. Urschel were one of Oklahoma's wealthiest couples. On July 22nd, 1933, around 11.15 p.m., they were on their back patio playing bridge with their double-date couple friends, Mr. and Mrs. Walter R. Jarrett. The patio was screened in, so they didn't have to worry about the threat of mosquitoes, but that's also probably why they didn't see Kelly and Bates coming from a mile away. The kidnappers asked which of the men was Urschel, and when nobody answered, they decided they were just going to take both men. They warned the women not to call for help and put both of the men back in the Chevrolet sedan that they had driven there in and drove away with both of these men. Urschel's wife immediately makes a call to J. Edgar Hoover himself, skipping local law enforcement entirely. She's like, I am not calling up these bozo cops from down the block. I'm calling J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover sent special agents to Urschel's Oklahoma home immediately, and an investigation started pretty instantaneously. On July 23rd, 1933, Jarrett came strutting up the driveway, only hours after he had been kidnapped at 1 a.m. So they legit only kept him for two and a half hours. He told his wife how the men had been driving to the outskirts of town, where they turned onto a dirt road parallel to the 23rd Street Highway and went northeast about 12 miles from the city. They crossed a small bridge, arrived at an intersection, and stopped there. These two idiots finally decide to figure out which of these two men are Urschel. They take out their wallets to figure it out, they identify Urschel, and they kick Jared out of the car. Kelly warned Jarrett not to tell authorities which way the car was headed when he dropped him off. Jarrett immediately told the police that they were heading south. Days had gone by and not a peep had been heard from the kidnappers or Urschel. He just vanished into thin air. Imagine the hell this poor family is going through waiting to hear word from her husband. Like, imagine. They must have assumed that he was already dead. Like, that's so friggin' traumatic. Realistically, picture yourself sitting on a back patio having a nice time, relaxing, playing a game of cards on a double date, and two dudes run up on you. One has a machine gun, one has a pistol. They take your husband and his friend, and then his friend comes home, but your husband doesn't. And you don't hear from him for days. I would absolutely die. Like... 
That is the worst case scenario ever. Finally, on July 26th, a package was received by J.G. Catlett, a friend of Urschel's and a wealthy oil magnate in his own right. He's He's got his own money. He received a letter that was written by Urschel asking him to work with the kidnappers to get him released and ordering him to head to Oklahoma City immediately without hitting up family, and a letter to his wife was also enclosed. This was the first time that the asking price for his release had been stated. $200,000. Kidnappings were pretty common back then, but this was the largest amount that anybody had ever requested in a ransom letter before. The money was demanded in $20 bills, and the letter says... It will be useless for you to attempt taking notes of serial numbers, making up dummy packages, or anything else in the line of attempted double cross. Bear this in mind, Charles F. Urschel will remain in our custody until money has been inspected and exchanged, and furthermore, will be at the scene of contact for payoff, and if there should be any attempt at any double crossing, it will be he that suffers the consequences. The ad was written in the Daily Oklahoman as requested, and the Daily Oklahoman also received a package. In the letter, written to E.E. E. Kirkpatrick, it gave instructions for the drop of the money. The instructions were super freaking particular. They wanted a light-colored leather bag. They told him what train to hop on, told him where to get on that train, where to sit. He was supposed to sit on the observation deck and when he should throw the bag containing the $200,000 onto the side of the tracks, it would be marked by a fire that would be on the right side of the tracks. He was instructed that if the plan to throw the bag over onto the tracks did not go according to plan, not your fault, to continue to Kansas City, Missouri, and register at Mulebach Hotel under the name E.E. E. Kincaid of Little Rock, Arkansas, and await further instructions. This transaction was to take place on July 29, 1933. The FBI, their main concern right now is to save Urschel. That is their main priority. They don't want him getting killed, so they're going to do absolutely anything that these guys ask. They get $200,000. They put it in $20 bills. They put it in a light-colored Gladstone bag. And they even bought an identical bag and filled it up with old magazines, thinking that there would be an attempted hijack and they wouldn't end up getting Urschel back. Of course, Kelly isn't the brightest crayon in the pack, so things did not go according to plan on the train. Kirkpatrick went to the Mulebach Hotel. He registered under the correct name and just chilled out in his hotel room. That was the only thing he could do. He got a telegram in this hotel pretty quickly after arriving. The telegram said, Owing to unavoidable incident, unable to keep appointed. We'll phone you about six. Signed, C.H. Moore. Later that night, around 5.30 p.m., he got a phone call to his hotel room. He was given instructions to leave the hotel in a taxi and go to the LaSalle Hotel and walk west a block or two. He asked the kidnappers if he could bring a friend with him, and Kelly said, absolutely not. Like, full stop, absolutely not, no. So he goes to the LaSalle Hotel by himself around 6 p.m. with the bag containing the money, he walked west, and he made it about a half a block before a man stopped him and took the bag. 
Kirkpatrick starts asking questions. He's like, uh, okay, here's $200,000, but I need some instructions. Like, I need to know how we're getting Urshel back. The man told him that Urshel would be returned pretty much when he felt like it, but it would be soon. Kirkpatrick went back to the hotel, checked out, and headed home. Urshel was returned to his home on July 21st at around 11.30 p.m. This man was playing absolutely no games while he was kidnapped. He said that he was allowed to sleep very little over the nine-day span that he was captured, but that was okay, because it allowed him to mentally record every single detail about everything that he encountered during that time. He was able to identify every moment and action taken by himself, the kidnappers, and everybody that they came in contact with over those nine days. The police were able to tell that the details that he was giving were really accurate because his account for what happened during the transaction of him actually getting kidnapped was pretty similar to the details that Jared had given. So if he's accurate about that, he's probably going to be accurate about the rest of it. He kept track of every turn during the drive there. Even though he had been blindfolded, he's keeping mental track of what's going on. He remembered going through two separate oil fields, where the gas station was that they stopped off at. He remembered switching into a new car, stopping for gas again, where a woman attendant at the gas station filled up the car and told the men that the crops in the area had burned up. He remembered walking on a boardwalk and entering a house. He clearly heard a man and a woman speaking in the next room, and he remembered staying on an iron bed and heard barnyard animals in the backyard. They stayed in that house for a day and then drove to a house that was about 15 minutes away. There, he was handcuffed to a chair and given a few blankets thrown into the corner of the room to sleep and pretty much spend the next nine days. He had discussions at this house with an older man who told him about his 25-year criminal spree, how Bonnie and Clyde had just been a couple of cheap filling station and car thieves about how many bank robberies he had pulled off, and even the robberies that they had scoped out but decided against pulling off. With the extensive details that Urschel was able to provide, it took the FBI very little time to surmise that it was Machine Gun Kelly that had pulled off this kidnapping. They quickly got a background check on both MGK and Catherine Kelly, including the weird way that her illiterate husband died, leaving the meticulously written in perfect cursive and grammar unaliving note. Again, I state that it is not noted anywhere officially that this note exists at all. The note would come back to bite her in the ass, though, when the FBI alluded in trial that she had not only written the note, but that she wrote the ransom notes while Urschel was in captivity. The two were currently living well beyond the means of two individuals with no recorded income whatsoever. They had expensive jewelry, new high-powered cars, so like it was obvious they had just stumbled upon some cash. When Urschel gave the information on his time there, all the facts seemed irrelevant. They were stupid little facts here and there, but they ended up being really helpful. There were a few nuggets that the cops were able to take out of his details and ended up locating the Kellys. First, he described the weather conditions on the day that he was traveling as raining. Next, he was able to point out that while he was there, 
He heard an airplane flying over the house every day at 9.45 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. Like clockwork, every single day that one plane would fly over. Using that information, they were able to figure out that he had probably been held somewhere near Paradise, Texas, hearing the planes that flew in and out of Fort Worth at 9.15 a.m. and Amarillo, Texas at 3.30 p.m. Paradise, Texas also had a rainy day on July 30th, so everything was just lining up. It made sense. When they checked the area to see if the Kellys had anybody that they knew in Paradise, lo and behold, Mrs. Shannon, Catherine's mom, lived near Paradise. When the cops went out to talk to her mom, they noticed that the house was very similar to the surroundings that Urshel had described. She also lived about a mile and a half, or a 15-minute drive, away from Armin Shannon, Catherine's dad. Remember that they had made a stop and spent the night at a house where there was an iron bed that Urshel was staying on. That was Catherine's dad's house. The FBI executed a raid on the mother's property, trying to capture the Kellys. They did didn't end up getting the Kellys, but they did find Harvey J. Bailey, a notorious criminal who had escaped prison in May of 1933. Bailey had $1,100 on him, and $700 of that money had been identified as money that had been used to pay off Urschel's kidnappers. Because obviously they did record the serial numbers of the cash that they gave him. Urschel positively ID'd Catherine's father and grandfather as the older and younger man that had discussed their criminal dealings with him during his time in captivity. He positively ID'd the house as the place that he had been kept, and multiple other particularities found in and around the area he was able to identify. The Shannons were very quick to give up that they had stood guard over Urschel, who had been kidnapped by Machine Gun Kelly and his friend Albert Bates. So they wasted no time in ratting out MGK. They didn't want it to come down that they had done it. So they admitted their involvement, but they quickly cleared up that they really didn't do anything. They just watched him. Bates was arrested pretty quickly after that. He had $600 of the ransom money on him, and he also had a machine gun on him when they caught him. So if you're eating or you're using my video as like background noise while you're playing a game on your phone, I mean, slay queen, but just pay attention for one minute because it's a little confusing and I don't want you to get lost on it. So the cops now have positive confirmation that it was, in fact, Kelly and Bates that had kidnapped Urschel. They have Bates in custody, but Kelly is nowhere to be found, and they have to find him. The serial number on all the bills that had been given to Kelly for the ransom money was given to banks all over the country with orders that they call the FBI if they received any of this cash. The Hennepin State Bank in Minneapolis, Minnesota, phoned up the FBI to tell them that they had received $1,000 from a man and the serial numbers on the bills matched what they had been given. When the FBI went to the bank, they found out that it was the truck driver for the company Walk Transfer Company named Sam Frederick that had used the $1,000 to obtain a $1,800 cashier's check. They go to Sam Frederick, and he told them on August 5th, 1933, Charles Walk, the owner of Walk Transfer Company, so obviously his boss, had told him to take these two dudes that Frederick didn't know to the bank and help them with a task that they needed done. The two men had Frederick 
purchased a cashier's check and gave him the $1,800. So now the FBI head to Walk. Walk tells them that he had gotten a phone call from his friends, and they were such close friends that he only knew him by the name Barney. Now, Barney had asked if he could get a cashier's check for him, and Walk is like, uh... That's grunt work. I own a business. I'm not wasting my time, but I will give you an employee and have him do it. So now the FBI has to track down Barney to see how Barney got his hands on this money. Honestly, don't ask me how they did it, but the FBI was able to track down the random dude that Frederick had purchased the cashier's check for. He purchased it for a man named Peter Valder. When they questioned Valder, he told them that Barney was Barney Berman, a friend of his that he had been friends with for a long time. He did this whole cashier's check situation because Berman had given him a $1,000 check and asked him to cash the same amount. Pretty much, here's $2,000, here's $1,000 cash and a $1,000 check. Go cash them, get an $1,800 cashier's check, and I'll give you the leftover $200 for doing the work for me. He was able to cash the check and get the cashier's check, but later the check was returned and it was marked as insufficient funds. The First National Bank and Trust Company of Minneapolis called Walk and told him that the check was returned, so he called Berman and told him that the check was returned, and Berman wrote a cashier's check for S.H. Peters on the Hennepin State Bank for $1,800 and asked him to take the $1,000 check to get the balance of $800 in $100 bills. At the same time, at the First National Bank and Trust Company, $500 of the ransom money was deposited five days later by Sam Cronick. When Cronick was questioned, he said that he got the money from his cousin, Sam Cosberg, two days earlier. Cosberg was questioned and told police that Berman had given him $25, $20 bills, which he later deposited into his account to pay back some debt that he owed him. Berman told the police that he had the money because a man named Collings had approached him looking to buy liquor. Honestly, I think at this point, they were just trying to avoid some serious jail time, so he really doesn't even care about confessing to some minor crimes. You know how when the police are investigating a murder, they don't care if you tell them about a situation that you bought or used a little coke or weed or whatever? Yeah, that's what's going on here. The FBI is just absolutely not concerned about a liquor purchase. They just want to find Kelly. So Collings asks Berman for liquor. Berman sends Collings to his friend Kid Can. Kid Can turns out to be Isidore Blumenfeld. Collings made the liquor purchase, buying 125 cases of whiskey for $5,500 paid for in bills that were mostly $20 bills. And that is where the ransom bills had come from. He also tells police that the second man that he was with when he purchased the check was Clifford Skelly. I told you that this gets super confusing, but I just want to give you guys the facts about this capture because it took so many man hours and so much investigating looking for these guys trying to track down Kelly. While the scramble is going on trying to find Kelly, 
Kelly is sending letters in the mail to Urschel and Joseph B. Keehan, the assistant attorney general, threatening their lives and intimidating government witnesses. He does not want to go down, and he's doing everything in his power to try to make the cops stop looking for him. Obviously, this doesn't work. These letters, even though they're not scaring anybody and they're not working, are just straight up taunting the government. He's not hiding out in a corner somewhere, no. With these letters, he's pretty much saying, like, nanner nanner poo poo, you got all your guys out here looking for me, and I'm sending you letters, and you still can't find me. Nanner nanner nanner. Like, he even sent one to a Confederate in the Oklahoma County Jail, telling him to get that prosecutor Hyde through his son. When the FBI intercepted the letter, they put Hyde's son and wife in protective custody for the remainder of the time that Kelly was missing and all throughout his trial. So he's in protective custody for a really long time. So at this point, Catherine gets a really bright idea. She goes to a Fort Worth attorney, Sam Sayers, and has him send a message to the FBI that she would turn in MGK in return for leniency for herself and her mother. The FBI accepted the deal. Like, they have no leads on this man. They're not going to find him. So they're like, oh, hell yeah, we'll, we'll allow you to do that. The FBI got word from Luther William Arnold, a low-level criminal, that Kelly was actually willing to go along with the deal. So they're like, okay, this is real. This isn't bullshit. This is actually going to happen. Arnold had met Catherine when he and his family were hitchhiking through Texas, and Catherine stopped, picked him up, and gave them all a ride. Arnold became her go-between, facilitating all the messages that she needed to get to her lawyer so that she didn't have to go there herself. The FBI did him dirty, though. When he was coming to pay one of the lawyers working for Catherine, the FBI grabbed him and got a full confession out of him, including the whereabouts of where the Kellys were staying. That worked in the DA's favor, as they no longer had to honor the deal that they were brokering with Catherine because they found the both of them without Catherine's assistance. It looks like they probably pulled this dirty trick to get out of having to work with Catherine because Urschel and his family really wanted to see Catherine and her mother locked up for the rest of their lives. They had a lot of money, and we all know that if somebody is rich and powerful, cops will bend to their whim. Catherine and this deal that she was trying to work out was no match for Urschel's power. So the cops finally catch wind somehow that the Kellys are living in Memphis, Tennessee, which, like, come on, how stupid can you be? You're a fugitive. You have the entire FBI searching for you. There's posters with your pictures on it all over the country. Every post office, like, you're literally on every surface of this country. They're searching for you. And your dumbasses go to your hometown. Like, really? I feel like I would be a better criminal than Kelly, and I am a terrible criminal. <laughs> they find out that they're living with J.C. Tickner, a friend of Kelly's, and on September 26, 1933, police raided the house and captured both George and Catherine Kelly. Now, I don't know about you, but I had never heard of this quote that he had supposedly said and is oh so famous for. Apparently, as he was being arrested, Kelly said to the cops, 
Don't shoot, G-men. Don't shoot, G-men. I had never heard of that quote before, but apparently it's like the most famous words ever uttered to police during an arrest. Like, it was a big deal. I honestly don't even think that he actually said that sentence to him. It was probably completely fabricated. I've read from multiple sources that when he realized he was being arrested, he just kind of shut his mouth. Anyway, so they're arrested and they're put on trial. $73,250 of the ransom money was located on the ranch of Casey Earl Coleman and Will Casey. Both of these men were arrested for harboring a fugitive. Coleman was sentenced to one year and one day in prison. The reason for that is because anybody sentenced to a year or under goes to jail, whereas anybody that's sentenced to a year and one day or more goes to prison, I believe. Don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure on that. But from what I've heard, because I've never been to jail, but from what I've heard from a lot of people that have been to jail, that's how it works. You go to prison if it's a year and a day or more, and you go to jail like a county jail or whatever for anything below a year. Casey was sentenced to two years at Leavenworth. J.C. Tickmore, dude's house that Kelly was staying at, was also indicted and sentenced to two and a half years, as well as some random dude named Langford Ramsey, who is just randomly named as a harborer, but I see absolutely no history on it, so they must have just caught wind that he was staying at his house at one point or another. I don't even know where this guy comes from. Luis Magnus was a friend of Catherine's. She flew out to Des Moines, Iowa to meet up with the Kellys, and she ended up helping them purchase a car. Because obviously the Kellys can't use their name to do any transactions while they're on the top 10 FBI's most wanted. She ended up getting indicted and sentenced to also one year and one day. Ben B. Laska, James C. Mathers, Clara Feldman, Edward Feldman, and Elvin Scott were all indicted for conspiracy to violate the kidnapping statute on December 14, 1934. Clara Feldman, Edward Feldman, and Alvin Scott, who had hidden a suitcase with the remaining ransom money in it from the police for years, had gotten five years in jail. Their sentences ended up getting suspended, and really all they walked away with was probation. James Mathers was acquitted and didn't end up getting any time. Ben Laska got 10 years, but he was released on bail pending appeal. The sentence was upheld and he went to Leavenworth. Molly Burt, an attorney in Denver, Colorado, testified at Laska's trial. When it was proven that she gave false testimony, she also got one year and one day in prison. George Machine Gun Kelly, Catherine Kelly, and Catherine's mom, Ora Shannon, got life in prison. During her trial, Catherine became an absolute instant celebrity. She showed up for trial every day in beautiful outfits, and the press ate it up. She was front page on every newspaper for the entire trial. Overall, the kidnappings ended with 21 people going to jail and 6 people going to jail for life. The other sentences were upwards of a combined 58 years. The trials that resulted from the kidnapping set legal precedents and made history in a bunch of different ways. Firstly, they were the first criminal trials to ever allow cameras in the court in the United States. 
They were the first people to be charged under the Lindbergh Law, which had made kidnapping a federal crime pretty recently before the actual kidnapping. I'm guessing that had something to do with the friend that had kidnapped and gotten $100,000 earlier in the story. I'm thinking that's probably why it was so recent. It was the first major case ever solved by J. Edgar Hoover. It was also the first time where defendants were transported by airplane when in police custody, as they were extradited from where they were arrested in Memphis, Tennessee, to stand trial in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where the original kidnapping crime took place. While he was in prison, Kelly got the nickname Pop Gun Kelly because he told big fish stories. The cons called him Pop Gun Kelly after cork guns that were popular with kids. The guys didn't take him seriously. So says Dale Stamphill, another inmate that was in Alcatraz with him. He was pretty much like a model inmate. He wrote remorseful letters to Charles Urschel, begging for forgiveness and asking him to get him out of prison. And Urschel ended up laughing this off and just let him rot where he was. But the way that Kelly acted was not what everybody had come to expect they were going to meet when they met Machine Gun Kelly. Like, this kid was a joke. He was not what his reputation said he was. Robert Shannon, Catherine's father, received a pardon from President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1944. He only served 12 years in prison, and he was supposed to serve life. Roosevelt said that he pardoned him due to his ill health, but he lived another 12 years before dying on Christmas Day in 1956. George Machine Gun Kelly was transferred to Leavenworth Prison in 1951, and he died of a heart attack there on July 18, 1954, on his 59th birthday. Catherine Kelly was released from prison in 1958 after the trial went on. In the trial, the judge ordered the government to supply all the files that they had on Kelly's case so the new team of lawyers that Catherine and her mom had working for them could get up to speed on the trial. They were arguing for a new trial based on the fact that the cops had operated immorally and illegally by arresting the lawyers that were working with them on their first trial in order to scare them into not going as hard as they could on the defense of Catherine, thus losing the trial for Kelly before it even began. They also claimed that the FBI hired a handwriting expert to analyze the ransom letters to determine if she was the one that wrote them, and when the expert determined that it wasn't her that wrote them, they suppressed that fact at trial. That's why the FBI refused to produce their files, and that's why the both of them ended up getting released. During her time in prison, she was the editor for the Terminal Island Gull, a newspaper written by and for inmates of the prison. Since the government had defied and refused to furnish these documents, Catherine and her mom were released after serving 25 years in prison. So it's not like they just got out on a technicality. They did 25 years. Like, they, they did their time. Catherine lived under the assumed name Lyra Cleo Kelly and stayed out of the spotlight. She wanted nothing to do with being a celebrity. She just wanted to live the rest of her life. She died in 1985 at 81 years old of natural causes. 
She died five years after her mother had passed away at age 92. So that is all I have on the infamous Machine Gun Kelly, possibly the most overrated criminal in the history of history. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed hanging out with me today. And please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!